Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, May 21st. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. Clashes break out between Palestinians and Israeli police in Jerusalem less than 12 hours after a ceasefire was declared between Israel and Hamas following 11 days of attacks. The number of daily COVID-19 vaccinations dropping here in the U.S. as debate grows over the use of masks in everyday life. And the U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona opens up about the use of masks in schools and education inequality in the Latino community. That exclusive conversation and more today on You News. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. Periodic clashes continuing in Jerusalem even after a major breakthrough in the ongoing violence between Israel and Hamas. Both sides agreeing to a ceasefire after 11 days of violence and unrest in the region. President Biden addressing the conflict and America's efforts in the negotiations. Andrea Linares brings us a look at where the region stands. After 11 days of deadly fighting, overnight a different scene. Celebrations in the Middle East, thousands parading through the streets, honking, whistling, shouting from rooftops. Others igniting fireworks over the ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Both agreeing to a, quote, mutual unconditional ceasefire in Gaza, according to a statement from the Israeli prime minister's office. A revitalized peace process is the only route to a just and lasting solution. President Joe Biden speaking from the White House Thursday. We've held intensive high-level discussions, hour by hour, literally. Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, and other Middle Eastern countries, with the aim of avoiding the sort of prolonged conflict we've seen in previous years. Biden also reiterating his support for Israel's right to defend itself against rocket attacks from Hamas, and at the same time, committing to help bring much-needed relief to Gaza. We will do this in full partnership with the Palestinian Authority, not Hamas, Authority, in a manner that does not permit Hamas to simply restock its military arsenal. More than 70,000 in Gaza bombed out of their homes as they continue to bury the dead, like this 11-year-old Palestinian girl, Dima Asila. Overall, the fighting resulting in at least 260 Palestinians killed. In the West Bank and Gaza, over 3,300 wounded. 12 Israelis killed and about 350 wounded. However, just before the announcement of a ceasefire agreement, Israeli airstrikes still hitting targets in Gaza. Hamas rockets still striking Israel. Some worry that a future two-state solution is unlikely. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is expected to travel to the Middle East in the coming days to meet with Israel, Palestinian and other regional leaders and discuss recovery efforts. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And back in Washington, President Biden and Vice President Harris are set to welcome the South Korean president at the White House today. The visit comes on the heels of new hate crime legislation meant to target violence against Asian communities in the United States. Edwin Piti has the latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin? 
That's right, Lorraine. President Biden will welcome Korean President Moon Jae-in into the White House today, making him the second foreign leader to visit the United States after Japanese Prime Minister came last month. According to a White House official, this shows the importance of Asia to the administration's foreign policy. Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will meet with the Korean leader before they all participate in a Medal of Honor ceremony for a 94-year-old Korean War veteran. Later in the evening, Biden and Moon will hold a joint news conference. But talking about the White House focus on Asian communities, a new law aimed at dealing with the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes was signed into law yesterday. President Biden said the legislation is part of the nation's first step towards unity. Take a listen. That all of this hate hides in plain sight. It hides in plain sight. And too often, it is met with silence, silence by the media, silence by our politics, and silence by our history. The COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act will create a new position at the Justice Department to expedite the review of potential pandemic-related hate crimes and incidents reported at the federal, state, or local level. It calls for the government to work with community-based organizations to raise awareness of hate crimes during the pandemic and will also require the Attorney General to establish a way to report the crimes online. Vice President Kamala Harris said that many ways of racism exist in America and they will continue to work to address injustices. This bill brings us one step closer to stopping hate, not only for Asian Americans, but for all Americans. It will expedite the Justice Department's review of hate crimes, every type of hate crime. It will designate an official at the department to oversee the effort and it will expand efforts to make the reporting of hate crimes more accessible at the local and state levels. The legislation passed the Senate with an overwhelming 94 to 1 vote earlier this month. Also, the House voted 364 to 64. According to a recent study reported hate crimes against Asians in 16 of the nation's largest cities and counties are up 164 percent since this time last year. Reporting in Washington, D.C., back to you, Lorraine. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. And now to a growing criminal investigation in New York. The chief financial officer of the Trump Organization and a longtime aide to the former president is under investigation over tax issues. New York State Attorney General Letitia James has reportedly been investigating Alan Weisselberg for months. Prosecutors are hoping to find more fine leverage that could sway him to into cooperating against the former president and his family. Rafael Rodriguez has the story. The New York Attorney General's office has opened a criminal tax investigation into former President Donald Trump's longtime financial gatekeeper, Alan Weisselberg. My chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg has handled the Trump Organization's finances for 40 years. He was so trusted, he was left in charge of the company when Trump became president. He has relinquished leadership and management of the Trump Organization to his sons, Don and Eric, and a longtime Trump executive, Alan Weisselberg. Now, investigators are looking into Weisselberg's personal taxes, plus his role at the Trump Organization. 
It's a way for prosecutors to exert pressure on Weisselberg to convince him to cooperate with the broader investigation into the larger company, raising the legal stakes for Trump and his family, according to sources familiar with the investigation. I think that will turn on him. Why? I think that his sons have too, many, too much criminal liability. Weisselberg's ex-daughter-in-law, Jennifer, has been cooperating with investigators and was subpoenaed for documents last month. She divorced Barry Weisselberg, also an employee of the Trump Organization, back in 2018. The way the company, the Trump Org, operates is by um, compensating you annually in apartments, cars, tuition um, for my two children. And in that sense, it's difficult to leave. Prosecutors are exploring whether benefits like those were a substitute for salaried compensation, which would lower payroll taxes for the Trump Organization, according to sources. New Yorkers, we can spot a con man. New York Attorney General Letitia James's investigation is happening at the same time that Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance is digging into Weisselberg's role at the Trump Organization, his personal finances, and benefits given to his son, Barry. The revelation coming soon after James said her office's civil investigation of the Trump Organization had now turned criminal. That probe includes whether the company improperly inflated the value of assets in financial filings, something former Trump attorney Michael Cohen testified to. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. Cohen has met with investigators several times. As for the former president, he has previously denied any wrongdoing, saying in a statement Wednesday, they failed to stop me in Washington, so they turned it over to New York to do their dirty work. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. And in related news, a federal court filing is now revealing that prosecutors seized a total of 18 electronic devices belonging to Rudy Giuliani and his associates in last month's raid. In addition to his assistant's laptop, there were also electronic devices belonging to multiple people who worked for Giuliani Partners. Attorneys for President Trump's personal lawyer are particularly angry about a covert search of Giuliani's iCloud account in 2019. Giuliani's lawyers say that search was illegal and therefore federal prosecutors should not have access to the materials they seized. And more states announcing lottery prizes for those who choose to get the COVID-19 vaccine. This as vaccination rates drop dramatically here in the U.S. Meanwhile, the nation nationwide mask mandates continue to disappear and the debate grows. In the U.S., COVID-19 vaccination is dropping significantly. According to CDC data published Thursday, the average daily pace is down nearly 50% from its peak in April. Right now, almost 127 million people are fully vaccinated. That's only a third of the population. We are in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. We actually have a ticket out. And the fact that we're fighting these things is incredibly frustrating. 
uh, because we're fighting ourselves. We're not just fighting the virus anymore. Over the last week, roughly 1.8 million doses of the vaccine were given each day. In mid-April, it was nearly 3.4 million doses per day. States coming up with ways to motivate people to get the shot. New York and Maryland both joining Ohio, announcing lottery prizes for people who get vaccinated, something that boosted Ohio's vaccinations by 28%. Everybody wins. You have a one in nine chance of winning the lottery, uh, but you get the vaccine and you win. Go out and get vaccinated for your chance to win a share of this $2 million. In West Virginia, people 16 to 35 who get the shot can now register for a $100 savings bond or gift card. And in Montana, people lining up after a donor offered $20,000 to incentivize residents. The first 400 people receiving their first doses went home with 50 bucks cash. Meanwhile, the debate over masks continues. The American Federation of Teachers has sent a new letter to the CDC seeking clarity on the agency's mask guidelines, which are causing confusion. The union of 1.7 million teachers asking several questions, including what to do in facilities with mixed students who are eligible for the vaccine with those who are not. Iowa joining Texas, the governor there signing a law banning local officials and schools from requiring masks. And in D.C., Democrats blocking a resolution proposed by minority leader Kevin McCarthy that called for ditching facial coverings on the House floor. We have a responsibility to make sure that the House of the Representatives chamber is not a petri dish for the, uh, because of the selfishness of some not to be vaccinated. And COVID cases nationwide have dropped 18% since last week. The seven-day average is now below 30,000. That's the lowest level in a year. And in some good news out of the Pentagon, COVID-19 vaccination rates are up among military service members. This comes after a massive effort by military leaders to promote the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. In March, the military said a third of troops were opting out of being vaccinated. Now it's seeing a 55% jump in vaccines over the last month. Of the approximately 1.4 million active duty service members, about 775,000 troops have now received received their first dose. Individual bases and installations began incentivizing the vaccine with days off and increased freedom of movement, framing vaccination as an important part of military readiness. And meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott's executive order that bans local governments, including counties, cities, public health authorities and public schools from requiring masks, goes into effect tonight. Entities that defy Abbott's order could face a fine of up to $1,000. Texans can only be required to wear masks in businesses that require them. At state, a state to supported living centers, government-owned or operated hospitals, and several criminal justice facilities, public schools may leave face covering requirements in effect until June 4th. And with concerns about masks in schools growing and the large-scale educational issues of the past year coming to focus, U News sat down this morning with the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, to discuss the many challenges that lie ahead. 
Mr. Miguel Cardona, Secretary of Education. Welcome to You News. You know, this is a very big issue that has impacted so many families, millions of families across the country. So what are some of the main priorities that you have in place right now to get as many students as possible safely back into the classroom? Well, thank you for having me. First of all, I'm glad to be here with you. It is unprecedented what happened in the past year. And we have to build back better with the same level of urgency and boldness uh, that the president has when uh, putting forward the American Rescue Plan. So we know that having safe buildings matters. So the American Rescue Plan provides $130 billion to provide good ventilation, but more importantly, to provide that the, the resources that our students need, like additional school social workers, uh, good summer learning experiences, additional teachers to help students that uh, have had uh, online learning for a year and need extra support, um, making sure that the mitigation strategies that we know work are possible in all schools across the country. Those are some of the things that we are doing. Now, speaking of that rescue plan, of the billions of dollars that have been allocated to help fund these public K through 12 schools, how exactly will you make sure that that money is used the way that it's supposed to be used? Yeah, that's a great question. Ensuring that all students have access to high quality schools when they return is all of our responsibility. And our agency has worked to with states to make sure that they provide plans on how they're gonna be using the funds. The deadline is coming up pretty soon for them to share what they're gonna be doing. In those plans, we expect to see uh, an equity lens through which the support will come. We expect to see increased stakeholder engagement. So families know what's happening and they're consulted before these plans are put together. We also expect that these plans are transparent, that you or anyone listening can go and find where the plan is for their state to see how their students are gonna benefit from the American Rescue Plan. And we're working with states uh, to share best practices of what's working across the country so that we can all learn from one another. Our students deserve the very best. And I tell you, when we go back, we should aim higher than what it was prior to the pandemic. We had issues of equity in education before the pandemic. We have an opportunity now to hit the reset button and make it better than ever before. Now, speaking of going back to the classroom, um, getting vaccinated is, is also a big um, part of all this. We know that the COVID-19 vaccine has been given emergency use authorization right. now for those ages 12 and up, but not all parents may want to get their kids inoculated. So how exactly will this matter be dealt with at schools when you have perhaps some children that have been given the vaccine and others that don't want it or haven't received it yet? Yet. Yeah, we know there is still vaccination hesitancy, but we also know that vaccination is one of the best strategies to safely reopen schools. And for me, as a father, I am excited about the opportunity I have tomorrow to bring my 15 year old daughter to get her first shot. We know that uh, the vaccination has helped us keep our schools open and we have to communicate with our families, especially those families who are a little bit concerned or are not sure, we need to share with them the success that we've had across the country to get vaccinated. With that said, it's really important that we maintain those mitigation strategies that we know work. Uh, my children have been attending school 
since August without vaccines. So it can be done if you follow the mitigation strategies and you maintain a level of safety because this is a health pandemic. Our students' health and safety is number one. Does that mean masks will be required in the classroom or is this going to be left to the CDC to determine that? Right now, we are not suggesting any changes for the remainder of the school year with regard to the use of mitigation strategies, including facial coverings. So because we don't have all students uh, with the opportunity to get vaccinated, and we know that children still do carry or can transmit it, even though sometimes they're asymptomatic, we want to take every precaution to make sure that our families know our schools are safe. We're not recommending any changes uh, in the spring. As CDC guidance continues to evolve and, and they update it, it could be that they uh, make changes toward the fall uh, reentry with regard to masks. But at this point, that hasn't been the recommendation. It, it is for our students outside of schools that when they're vac fully vaccinated, that they don't have to wear their masks. But in our schools, we're expecting the mitigation strategies to continue. Speaking of these uh, education gaps that we see sometimes in minority communities, the Black and Latino communities have been uh, affected by the pandemic, um, I would say in a lot of aspects, but also in education. What is being done to bridge the education gap in these communities? Yeah, thank you for that question. We know prior to the pandemic, we had issues in education where some students had better access and better outcomes than other students. And unfortunately, it was often almost a predictor based on race and place, where people live, their zip code and their skin color. We can do better and our students deserve better. So as a Latino, this is something that I've always felt passionate about. I wanna make sure that as we're building back better, we have equity at the forefront of our minds when we're talking about how we're gonna utilize the funds. So for example, students that are English learners who have had to sit in front of a computer for a year, uh, learning in a language that maybe is not as uh, comfortable to them, we need to make sure that we have additional support staff for our students who are learning English. We need to make sure that we have qualified teachers available to students, perhaps smaller class sizes, um, better engagement with families. We know, especially in the Latino community, our parents are our best teachers. So we need to do a better job as we build back to engage our families better, to engage our, our families and our students, not only in academic learning, but in that social emotional support that they need. Uh, being locked in front of a computer, being uh, sit, sitting, learning in front of a computer for a year takes a toll on students. We have to be prepared to meet their needs and give them socialization. That's how language is learned best anyway. So we need to be prepared to meet them where they are when they come back and provide more support for those students who have been hit the hardest. It's definitely wonderful to see the kids learning in the atmosphere that they love, which is the classroom. Like you said, we know that you are running on a tight schedule. But once again, thank you so much for your time, Mr. Miguel Cardona, Secretary of Education. A wonderful conversation and hopefully it provides some answers to our viewers. Have Muy a wonderful gracias. day. Igual. Hasta luego. Adiós.
That was a great conversation. And even as some coronavirus restrictions are being lifted, the World Health Organization in Europe is urging people to avoid international travel. The agency's regional director says there are still concerns that more transmissible variants, like the one first detected in India, could pose a risk. The good news is he says authorized vaccines appear to be effective against known strains of the virus that are causing concern. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the story from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And for the first time in less than a month, a boat loaded with undocumented migrants has shipwrecked off the coast of San Diego. At least one dead and eight injured when they jumped off the boat into rough waters. Jani Aponte has a report. Efforts to resuscitate this man were in vain after his body was found floating off the California coast near the city of La Jolla. Ten other people were rescued from the sea in what authorities believe was an attempt to enter the country illegally on this boat. We have 15 people that we are checking and interviewing. Eight of the rescued people were taken to nearby hospitals because they were suffering from hypothermia. Rescuers say conditions in the morning were extremely dangerous. Fueron nada más 62 grados de temperatura. También las olas. It was 62 degrees Fahrenheit. The waves at four to five feet high, also a strong current. For people who know how to swim very well and are in physical conditions like our lifeguards, it's difficult. Nuestros salvavidas es difícil. Authorities have reported an increase in unlawful sea crossings in this region. Four days ago, authorities detained 24 migrants on a boat, and on May 2nd, this boat crashed with 30 people aboard. Three of them died near San Diego. I believe there have been three incidents in about 10 days. Reported by Dulce Castellanos, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. The Biden administration will stop using two immigration detention centers in Massachusetts and Georgia. This after both of those facilities faced allegations of abuse to detainees. Jorge Hernandez has more on the changes that lie ahead. Jerome and Yuridia welcomed the order from the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, to stop detaining migrants at the Irwin Detention Center in Georgia, where they and 20 other women claimed to have been medically abused. They will no longer be able to harm women. I am very proud and very happy. I am grateful that our voices have been heard. Both say that some inmates were subjected to hysterectomies and others to surgeries without their consent by this gynecologist hired by the detention center. Jaromi recalls that she had severe cramps and was taken to the doctor. He told me I had a cyst and I had to have the surgery. 
They took her to the hospital for surgery, and when they were getting her ready for it, they told her they were going to do a hysterectomy. Pero cuando me dijo que when she told me that she was going to have an operation to remove the uterus, matriz, I was very scared. She was spared from the surgery because she had a COVID test a few moments before, and it was positive. But she was deported two days after reporting the alleged abuse. Yuridia says that she arrived at the detention center with a swollen rib, she asked for medical help and was taken to the same gynecologist. She was given the same diagnosis as Jerome. They checked me and said I have a cyst and infection. A few days later, she went back to the doctor supposedly to follow up on her case. They took her to a surgery room. When she woke up, she felt like her world had fallen apart. When I take off my gown to get dressed, I see that I have a scar and I start to feel empty inside. I'm very sore. She says she never authorized the gynecologist's procedure. Reported by Vilma Tarazona, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.